Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, a report from the Social Planning and Research Council says that Hamilton's poverty rate has actually dropped nearly a quarter over the last two decades. Wesley Urban Ministries is shutting down its day center in downtown Hamilton. And Hamilton's public school board is dropping 173 courses planned for next year because of those budget cuts from the Ford government. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A report from the Social Planning and Research Council now says that Hamilton's poverty rate has dropped by nearly a quarter over the last two decades. That's the good news. The bad news is we still have a long way to go. Joining us to talk about this is uh, our good friend Sarah Mayo, who's with the Social Planning and Research Council, and Kim Martin, who is the new executive director for the SPRC. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for coming in today, and it's great to meet you. Thanks for coming in, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to have you with us. Is this, uh, I guess, Sarah, kind of a good news, bad news report? Well, I think generally good news. We're on the right track. Um, that's never bad news. It might not be going as fast, you know, certainly as, as we would want to see. Um, and so lots. this report certainly talks about a lot of things we can do better to reduce poverty and really work towards eliminating it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's, it's good news all around, you know. The, the we've seen an, an, an a decrease from 21.9% in 1996 to 16.6% of the population in 2016. Uh, with that in mind, and, and we are to be, you know, happy about that and congratulate uh, those that have been working so diligently on this. Uh, but the reality, Kim, is we're still below the provincial average and we've still got a long... It's not ready... We're not ready to put the toolbox away yet, are we? No, no. I mean, there, I, I think that's that's one of the main points of the report, too, is that we're emphasizing that um, intervention does work and we can't stop now. So that's that's why we've in, entitled the, the project with that name, is that there's still an awful lot of work to do. There still are disparities within the communities, as we've heard about and, and we're familiar with, with um, Code Red research that mm-hmm. has come out and revisiting that. Um, we know that for women, um, there are disparities that exist for them, for uh, people that are racialized as well, for single people. So we really need to pay attention to, to some, of, some of those areas in order to um, raise everyone to the same to the same standard. Well, and I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're still getting new information on this almost on a daily basis. I just heard the story this morning about the, the challenges with the LGBTQ uh, population, too, and uh, and a lot of that seems to be centered in the downtown core, and there, there is a geography element to this, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, uh, Hamilton, like most cities, um, uh, there's... Uh, segregation by income Um, and most you know Hamilton like most cities has uh, some neighborhoods with no affordable housing and so that's really you know housing is really the driver of these trends of where um, if you have a a lower income where you can live Um, there are many cities where there is no longer any affordable housing in the downtown and Hamilton in some ways we're we're lucky that we still have um, some affordable housing downtown, but we need affordable housing uh, across the city so that people um, can stay, you know, near their family, near their jobs, um, even if their income is, is lower than uh, than other people in the neighborhood. One of the more troubling statistics that we saw, and it was released just a couple of months ago, Kim, uh, talks about life expectancy and lifespan. Uh, and uh, the Code Red report that was issued this year actually says that uh, the lifespan of people living in the lower part of the city uh, five years fewer than people that live on the mountain, six years fewer than people that live in some of the suburban communities. Uh, that tells us that we've we've still got an awful lot of work to do, and we know actually where to target it. Absolutely, and I, I think it's only it's only through um, through the research that we're able to know where we need to target our efforts. 
and and what some of those barriers are and how can we reduce the barriers for those communities and and uh, and this report talks about you know a lot of the things that would help with that so it talks about the improvements that we've had in our social safety net you know there's um we have seen certainly uh improvements for families with children um the uh uh the income tax, the child benefits that have improved quite a bit over the last 20 years. We've seen a lot of improvements to education um, funding um, and and the high school graduation rate has gone up uh, tremendously in the last 20 years. Um, the minimum wage has gone up. So all these things um, help people um, to uh, be able to, you know, fulfill their potential and and uh, access the labor market and, and get a good job and, and be able to leave poverty. But there's more that needs to be done, exactly like you say, because these disparities in uh, it poverty, it doesn't just affect your income. Um, low income also um, affects health and um, life expectancy. And so we need to do more. Um, certainly the... Um, affordable, uh, the, the, the rental housing crisis um, is something that needs attention. We need better tenant protections. Um, we need to make social assistance adequate and fair. We need to address discrimination and inequality, certainly in, employ- in employment. And um, yeah, these, uh, you know, there's uh, some of these things are simple to do. Some are, are more complex, but, but we can't stop now and we have to continue to uh, to improve all these things. Well, and somebody just, uh, I think, just tilted the floor just a little bit more, too, because, I mean, e- these numbers are reflective of what's happened in the past uh, number of years, Kim. And, and they, as you say, there's a lot of good news here. But if you look at some of the more recent government policy announcements and changes that have come, uh, it means there's going to be even more challenges here. Uh, the ge- yes, the, the, you know, the minimum wage did go up, but not as much as it was supposed to, and it's been frozen now. Uh, the, the living wage program that we thought was going to be in place here, and a number of people in the Hamilton area, as you know, took part in that. That's gone now. Uh, and it just seems as if there are going to be a number of other challenges now, too, with some of the other cuts uh, to some of the other social programs that have been announced in the last couple of weeks here uh, by the government. It's, uh, it's going to put an awful lot more pressure to try to keep moving ahead here. Yeah, it, it, def- it definitely will. Um, so, And that's why it's really important that, that we work together and uh, and work together with other community groups and work with the government so that we recognize that actually intervention does work. Um, there, we've, we've identified as well that there are, there are barriers, um, even with some of the interventions that are in place, to assist people that are in situations of poverty. So, for example, one of the things that, that, that we know is that um, things like child tax uh, credits aren't always redeemed by the people that are, that are most needing them. And that there can be barriers in terms of the system, in terms of how people access those those benefits. So there are there are tax clinics in place. We have a, actually a financial empowerment program that helps people that are uh, um, experiencing low income to be able to apply for the for the credits. Sometimes people aren't applying for credits that they're entitled to. So there are some of these systemic barriers in terms of how people access services. We need to also break down some of those. How do you reach out to them? Because a lot of the time, they're not doing it because they're trying to run from the government. They just don't know. Exactly. And and so part of that really is, is, uh, is education and outreach and really bringing programs to where people are at. Um, many of our systems are designed um, to really require that people 
um, that people approach the institution mm -hmm. in order to get the help. Yeah. And I think we need to look at things a little differently. We need to look at how can we bring the services to the people? Where are the people um, that aren't showing up maybe in the government offices to apply for benefits that they're entitled to? Um, how can we reach out to them? So it's really, I think, more of an outreach program that we're looking at and connecting with service agencies also that are, that are providing some service. Uh, and that's that's part of the challenge, I guess, Sarah, to actually find out exactly where you do have to go to try to reach out and to, and to get that message out there. Yeah, I mean, on the on the uh, you know back to the tax clinic idea, there you know sometimes the the barrier can be, you know, my last employer didn't give me a T four, and and so people you know think that. Uh, you know, and rightly so, it does sound like if I don't have a T4, how can I complete my taxes? But there are ways to um, to find a solution to that problem. You know, my last employer went bankrupt. I don't even know where to go. And so those kinds of things can be big barriers. And, and, and so reaching out to people... Um, this program in particular um, is reaching out to through different agencies, um, through earlier centers, et cetera, to, to let people know of the, the services out there to help people. And to help people, it's a financial empowerment program to help people um, uh, be able to prepare their own taxes and, and help people in their own communities um, so that they can um, have that independence to, to not worry about, oh, how am I going to do this next year? How are we doing in the housing situation? Uh, Sarah mentioned that uh, came right off the top as one of the major challenges, and that always has been. Uh, and, and as a result of, of, of that challenge, of course, you've got some secondary challenges that, that spring from that. Uh, the fact that people tend to leave me from one neighborhood to another on a pretty consistent basis. You've got kids that maybe go to one school one year and then they have to move because they, they couldn't afford the apartment or their, their living space, whichever it was. Uh, and that nomadic lifestyle only makes a bad situation worse. So how do, how do we challenge that? How do we tackle that? Yeah, housing is a, you know, I think to me the core issue in Ontario that is not getting the attention it deserves because most of the people who you know most of the headlines we see in about housing are about sort of how great it is for you know if you own property yeah it's pretty good because when you resell your house you will uh, make a profit much more than you would have in past decades because we've seen such an inflation uh, such a quick inflation in housing prices and and the you know uh, real estate boards etc they really um, that's that's good for them and so it's seen as a positive but um, really, we have to give more attention uh, and, and, and listen to the voices of tenants, of people who don't own property or who are trying to buy houses and, and, and are tenants right now and who are really facing difficulties. And so, um, you know, tenant protection is an easy thing, you know, for a government that right now, provincial government that doesn't want to spend money, improving the, the Residential Tenancies Act would cost zero money and would really help people. Um, we could have a system like in Quebec where there is much better tenant protections, where there is some um, where you can find out what the previous rent was for for the a, a new unit you move into and be able to appeal if if it's been um, increased uh, to a an outrageous level. Um, but, but we're going the wrong way in Ontario in the last little while. Some of the recent decisions here, we're rolling back the clock, and, and a lot of those tenant protections that have been in place are now being removed. Um, on tenant protection, we haven't. There's other areas where where we've seen some rollbacks. Certainly in employment, um, you know, we're we're firing employment inspectors, which were helping people um, who were in exploited situations by their employer. We have uh, reduced uh, employment standards. 
so yeah, those those rollbacks are terrible for people in in precarious situations and precarious employment situations. Um, but the the people in precarious housing situations are are being completely ignored, and um, and really, well, we, uh, we've we can talked do much we, we've better. talked with a number of those groups over the last little while that have to, are being forced to go to tribunals. Yeah. It's an intimidating process for them. A lot of the time, they don't feel that they can get proper representation yeah. and they feel as if the deck is stacked against them. Yeah, and it is. We have a system in Ontario that um, where tenants have very little power and we have to recognize that that we need to give to tenants more power to, to make it a fairer system um, so that uh, tenants can be protected because housing is a human right. It's not, it shouldn't just be left up to the market forces. Well, and, and I guess really when you look at it from that perspective, Kim, <laughs> Uh, there's a, a number of other issues that have to be dealt with, and you've touched on many of them here in this report. But job one is put a roof over somebody's head. I mean, you know, there's there's too many people living on the street right now, and and that's that's got to be the first element here to simply say, okay, get out of the cold, get out of the the rain, get out of the the weather, and and have some place to live, some place that you can call home, uh, and let's work from there. Because that seems to be job one before you can address a lot of these other challenges. And that's really what's behind the um, the housing first philosophy, is that mm-hmm. before we can address other issues, people need to have safety, they need to have physical security, and, and that is in part through affordable housing. So how do we provide that, and then also how do we then lend support into for other areas that may be needed? What are the challenges? You've got this report now, and, and like you say, this is, this is good news, although the, you know we obviously still have a lot of work to do. Where do you go from here, Sarah? I, you know, I mean, for, for us, this is a time to um, to really bolster all the people. You know, the, this poverty reduction that happened over the last 20 years was not an accident. It was because of hard work that was done, um, you know, in terms of researchers putting out the numbers, in terms of, and, and finding out about policies in other countries, in terms of activists, um, um, you know, demonstrating and, 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 and talking to their neighbors and, um, and, and all sorts of ways that, that we've, as a society, d- realized our eyes have been opened and governments have realized, okay, yeah, actually, if we invest in people, we are going to improve the economy, reduce poverty, and reduce the taxpayer burden. And and so it's a time to realize, okay, this is um, this work needs to continue. The work is hard, um, but it is worth it. There are gains. It is. Um, it we we can see improvements. It's not. Um, you know, people have said to us, "Oh, nothing's changed in poverty. Why are you bothering?" And this is like, no. This is there are changes. There are improvements when we all um, pitch in uh, together and 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 decide that this is worth um, worth investing um, and 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 worth tackling and eliminating once and for all. Uh, we've got about a minute left here. I know what we talked about a lot of the downtown areas, and I know they identified 12 neighborhoods, and 11 of them are downtown. Uh, but the the broader picture here, though, is this is not just a downtown issue. This is this is rampant everywhere in the city. Yeah, this this report doesn't uh, uh, have uh, you know it's really just at the city level, um, but there are, we've done previous reports that show there there is poverty in every single neighborhood uh, in our in our city, absolutely, um, and so it's something that we. Um, we, we can't just concentrate or, or think of as a downtown issue for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, some good news here anyway, and a, a lot of stuff to work on here. And, uh, you know, as I say, you haven't really got time to pat yourselves on the back because there's a lot more to go, but we really do appreciate
appreciate the update on this. Uh, thanks for coming in today. We'll stay Thank in touch you. as uh, we move forward on this. Thanks. Great to meet you, Kim. Thank you. We'll, you too. Thank expect you. expect to see a lot more of all both of you in the days and weeks ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Wesley Urban Ministries is uh, shutting part of its operation down in downtown Hamilton. Uh, there's a, a headline in The Spectator today that uh, covers this. Uh, Terry Moore actually wrote a great piece about this, but uh, the headline might be a little misleading if that's all you've seen. Uh, it says, Wesley Urban Ministries, the hub for Hamilton's most vulnerable, closing its doors. Uh, that's not really the case. Uh, to try to get some clarification on this, uh, Andrea Butters is with us, who is the manager of resources for Wesley Urban Ministries. Good to see you again. Thank you so much. And the spec has changed the headline. Yeah. So it is our day center. I've got the early edition, yeah. That's right. If you're up really early this morning, um, you might have had a different headline. But it's that our day center at 195 Ferguson Avenue North is closing. Okay, so give us the background on this. What's going on? This, But the it's still there. I mean, the center's there, but you're going to have to change some operations, and I guess, I guess, kind of re- spread yourself out a little bit now. So the day center um, has been at one, 195 Ferguson Avenue North since 1996. Yeah. Um, when we opened at that location, Wesley Community Homes and Wesley Urban Ministries were the same um, organization, and um, due to provincial laws, they had to change once we were open. So they are their own um, organization, Wesley Community Homes, and they have noticed us that they will not be renewing our lease. So we have been renting space for them for our day center and um, that is a hub of services for people experiencing homelessness and poverty and our barriers. Um, And so what we want to let people know um, and most importantly we began telling our clients and those who accessed the day center yesterday that we will be closing um, that location as of August 23rd this summer. So where do you go? What happens? In it? Obviously, the need is still there. Absolutely. Well, the first concern is for the people who access that program. There's uh, meals, there's recreation, there's housing support, and much more. So the first thing is we'll be working um, We're working with the City of Hamilton to try to connect uh, those people to other services in Hamilton. And we um, have about over 500 people um, each year that access that program. So that's our first concern and our first priority. Um, We also didn't want to share this news until we had something else to announce. So we will be opening um, in August a meal program at Vanier Towers. And the Code Red series has done a great job highlighting Mm -hmm. the need um, in those two apartment buildings in downtown Hamilton. And uh, there are some of those people come to the Day Center for their meals. So at Vanier Towers, um, over 80% of the people there have experienced homelessness. And uh, their average life expectancy is age 50. So it's a very high needs population. So we will be moving our meal program there, but it's not going to be the same program. So we're not uh, moving the name day center to that uh, location. But there, there is going to be some sort of a service and some kind of, a, a, I guess, a rejigging of, of everything that you have to do. I, this didn't necessarily catch you off guard. You could kind of see this coming on the horizon, but it's, it's going to be problematic. We were very shocked, to be honest, and um, to receive the notice that our lease um, was ending. And we're really sad to be sharing the news. Um, as I said, again, our first concern is for the people that we support. Um, but we are committed to continuing to su- um, support people experiencing homelessness in the community, particularly through our housing um, services team. Uh, we have a team in um, Hamilton as well as Brantford and in Halton that help people who are facing homelessness. It's a mobile team. That team will continue. And last year they um, housed a record um, over 112 um, 
um, people. So that team will continue. Then we're adding um, this new meal program at Vanier and uh, all of our other um, programs will be continuing in the community. Just connect the dots here for a second, uh, if I could, Andrea. As you know, we were just talking with Sarah Mayo and uh, Kim Martin from the uh, Social Plan and Research Council before you joined us here. And we were talking about this report that says that actually poverty is starting to go down. And, and, and some of these crises issues, and they were crisis issues, uh, are starting to be dealt with. And they haven't been eradicated, but uh, the, you know, the numbers are much better than they were 8, 10 years ago. Uh, Wesley Urban Ministries is part of that success story. I mean, you were a catalyst for a lot of that because when you, when you start looking at where some of the, the most severe problems are, you guys were kind of at ground zero. Uh, right where you were there, and and you've been a huge help to that community. Well, the day center is what we call a low barrier program, so you can be accessing the program, you know, under the influence as long as you're not harming yourself or other people. So we really um, take people where they are and develop um, a, like a relationship with them and talk to them and find out, you know, what their needs are and how we can help. And what I do love about going to that location and all of our Wesley programs is our staff and volunteers know people by name. And if anyone served at our gala dinner at the day center, they know that every person's known by name and uh, the staff know them and want to help them to um, achieve that next step for them, whether it's housing, whether it's accessing supports in the community, um, harm reduction, um, et cetera. We know that people facing homelessness, um, many of them experiencing mental health um, and uh, addictions as well. So it's complex issues, but they're people and we want to make sure that they are cared for and that um, we are meeting them one-on-one and getting to know them. And I think that's with the success of the program at Day Center, and we hope that will carry through in our other um, programs in the community. Well, I can tell you that uh, when I was on city council and I I dropped down there to see you and the staff, or Paul Johnson when he was there, and of course others, uh, since uh, Paul left and went to the city. But anyway, there's always a group of people hanging around up front there. Uh, you know, right down, go down Ferguson Avenue there, and they're they're having they're having their coffee or whatever else, and uh, it's a safe place for them, isn't it? Well, yes, and I also what we've heard from people who have come to the day center is people tell them um, who are street involved or on the streets, go to the day center, go to 195 Ferguson for help. So we're really working over the next couple of months um, to see where else we can in the community be. Um, having people go to um, for help. Uh, I think all of us in the community want to reduce, if not end, homelessness in our community. And I think that that means offering immediate support, but then also um, Wesley and other providers are um, providing supportive housing, um, housing first model, which is where you house people and then offer, you know, help people achieve their goals after that. So I think it's um, a multi-prong I guess, a way to approach homelessness in our community. Well, again, when I talk to some of the residents and some of the people that were, were, I guess, clients in that particular area, I mean, right on site, that that was a common thing that I heard through most of them. They don't judge me here. They don't judge me. They don't say, well, you know, you got to clean up your act and then we'll help you. You you help them. Uh, And and then when they want to, you know, impact some of these services and they want to access us, you, you're the conduit for that as well to take that next step. Exactly. And that is our first concern is to make sure that we can help those who have felt safe at the day center and welcomed at the day center to help find other supports in the community. And I just want to hand it to our staff at the day center and in our housing teams. Um, they are working so hard to make sure that, that people who access our program know about the change and also um, help uh, connect them to other services and also um, help get them housed in the community. And so I really want to thank them um, for their dedication, extremely hardworking team.
Now, how do you get this information out here? I mean, we're talking about this now, but, I mean, there's a lot of people, like you say, that every day or every week or whenever uh, are going to show up there and, and look for your help and assistance. And you know that as much as you, you're going to issue press releases and everything else, there's somebody going to come knocking on that door the day after you guys leave and, and just say, where are you guys? Uh, you, you you really have to make sure that, uh, that through the grapevine that you get that word out there that, look, we're still here for you. We're just not physically here. We're somewhere else. Exactly. And I think that um, that's why we started now to share the news um, with our clients and with the community. And uh, we will be continuing to make sure that we share the news and uh, until August. And if anyone in the community has any questions, they're more than welcome to reach out to us today or um, anytime this summer. Uh, you can visit wesley.com and all of our information is there as well. You have many community partners that have been very, very supportive and helpful on this whole thing. Have you heard from them since uh, you heard about the, the, the fact that you're going to have to be relocating? And there's been lots of conversations, um, and meetings, and also when we uh, officially shared the news, there has been uh, a lot of support um, passed on to us. We do live in a great community, and we're going to be relying on those community partners to make sure that we are together um, in the community supporting the most vulnerable. Talk to us about some of the programs, and you, you touched on them a few minutes ago in the early part of our conversation, but with the relocation and, and I guess the reevaluation of, of what you're doing and what you're going to be able to do right now, are, are you concerned? Or, or are you confident that, that you can still offer the same level of support? It unfortunately will not be the same. Um, it will not be an open day center um, due to the cost of rent for a different location and also zoning. A day center has a diff- uh, specific zoning that we would yeah, have to yeah. um, find. And uh, the location at 195 Ferguson Avenue North was purposely built um, for, for um, a drop-in program and to uh, help the people who are experiencing uh, poverty. So it won't be the same. The meal will be served for the residents at Vanier Towers. But again, um, our programs in our children and youth and our newcomer services and all of our other residential and outreach in housing and homelessness will be continuing. Did you try to, to find a, a similar location? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, yes. oh my gosh, what's, what's our plan B here? Yes, there we did look uh, at other not locations. Not a whole lot of facilities available. Um, the uh, rent is high in our community and also um, the zoning. So we did look. Um, we have been actively working on this um, since we received notice that our lease would not be renewed. So this is this is the best of the situations as as, as you see it right now. Uh, is is the the move to Vanier a permanent one, or is it until are you still looking? I mean, is it still a, the possibility that maybe you could find yourself some sort of a location, a facility that they could offer some of these programs that that you're concerned about now? I think right now it's a permanent location. I think we really see a need. I think the Code Red series has done an excellent job highlighting the immense need um, in in that uh, those two apartment buildings and they are all single dwellings so they do um, attra- they do um, house um, individuals which is very similar to the folks that were um, supporting at the day center um, Wesley is always um, meeting community needs so of course we will be looking in the future for other opportunities but at this point this is the direction we're moving in and um, it's very bittersweet we're very sad but we are pleased that at least we have one way that we will be continuing to support um, people who do face homelessness one of the things that wesley has always done though uh, from since 1996 andrea is 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 gear programs toward what the community needs uh 
now you are changing location right now. Do you anticipate that you may have to modify some of those programs? I know you're not going to be able to offer the full service that you can right now. Uh, in other words, the, the, the day center obviously is not going to be available to them right now. But but are you anticipating that uh, that once you do make the move, you're going to find out that, wait, wait a second, they need something else that maybe we weren't doing. We're going to have to try to accommodate that. We've started to um, figure out what we can offer at Vanier Towers to meet the needs. And one of the things we are planning is to be offering more um, life skills training and like cooking classes for mm-hmm. the people who live there. Um, we do know that often those are barriers to people who are um, newly housed after facing homelessness. Yeah. Um, so I think there's going to be some um, exciting uh, um, new things that we can offer based on the people um, that are living in those apartment buildings. Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's a matter of learning how to, to set up house, uh, which is going to be a, a new experience for an awful lot of them is, um, you know, how to shop, where to shop, uh, what should I do, you know, uh, allocation of funds, you know, where do I put so much money for rent? What do I do for this and for groceries, et cetera? It's, it can be overwhelming for an awful lot of these people. Exactly. So, and I think that's an area that we're already working in, but mm-hmm. we're looking forward to expanding that in our new location. And uh, and the possibility, by the way, since uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on here is to talk about the possibility of, of even greater uh, community support. You've got some great sponsors and great people that have helped out. Uh, but in this transition period right now, if somebody else comes on and says, hey, listen, I'd like to jump in and be able to help you, uh, you the door's open, right? Absolutely. My phone number and email are on <laughs> the wesley.ca. So anyone interested in becoming involved, um, please don't hesitate to contact us. And I did receive a very kind email from a donor um, who said, you know, thank you for the sharing the news. And by the way, where we can drop, where can we drop off the knapsacks this summer? So it was just so great that um, the community does want to offer support. So whether through a knapsack drive this summer, whether it's donating items, whether it's uh, making a donation to the organization, uh, we do really appreciate the immense support we receive from the community. Well, because it, as, as we just talked about with Sarah and with Kim in the last segment, we're starting to see results. It's not just as if you guys are treading water here. You're actually giving people a hand up and, and, and an opportunity to, to live a better life, a better lifestyle, and, and, and to maybe, you know, to be able to maybe increase their, 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 their opportunities outside of there, too. But, I mean, the first thing is stable housing. That's really what it comes down to. It's stable housing and improving skills so yeah. that they can um, be independent. Um, they can, uh, obviously, the greatest goal is for people to have improved their education and to receive employment. It's always our across all of our programs. And I would say if people are new to Wesley, um, we do have actually over 20 locations in Hamilton and we have uh, seven different mobile teams. So um, that is something that we are concerned about in our messaging, that it's not the whole organization closing. We actually offer quite a range of supports in the community. Wesley Day Center is one of our most well-known programs, but we hope that this um, people will take the opportunity to get to know us a bit more. Well, and, and you are part of the success story. Uh, you know, there's a number of agencies here that we don't talk about very often. Uh, maybe a couple of times a year, you know, you'll come on with during the Tree of Hope or something. And we'll talk about this and that. Yes, it's it's always right. great to have you on. Don't stop doing that. But but when we look at these numbers and the improvement that we've seen in poverty uh, in this community over the last 10 years, uh, a, a lot of agencies like Wesley and others have to take a bow because it, this doesn't this wasn't a happenstance. I mean, th- this is a lot of hard work that's gone into this. Yes, and one of the things I would like to mention was we just had our um, Case for Kids walkathon a couple of weeks ago, and that started almost 30 years ago because what we realized is that the majority of people facing homelessness in the community as adults um, had some form of 
childhood trauma or barriers as a child. And so we wanted as an organization to be investing in children who are living in uh, high priority neighborhoods. So um, that is just one example as an organization that we have been responding to community need. And what I love about visiting the children's programs is it's just the same as myself picking up my kids from summer camp or after school programs. It just happens to be our programs are free for people who are living in high priority um, neighborhoods. And what you um, might not realize is that um, there in poverty might be improving in our community, but the concentration of poverty is what concerns us. So um, in the Hamilton Centre riding, we're the third highest child poverty rate in all of Ontario. And so that's what motivates us um, to continue to make sure that we're offering programs to children, as well as, as I said, for the adults facing homelessness. Uh, We have our youth housing, just a variety of programs to help um, make sure that we're trying as best as we can to support people to uh, improve their lives. Well, just to, you know, if you spend a day or two just talking to some of the people at, at places like Wesley, uh, the Eva Rothwell Center, just a few blocks away from on the other side of town, uh, and the services that they offer. Uh, and it's remarkable when you go in there and you see the programs that are offered and the people that are accessing them. And you have to wonder, where would they be if it weren't for the work that you guys are doing and the programs that you offer? Absolutely. And we did in the last year um, help over 12,000 people. So it's quite a significant number. And um, I think the biggest thing is that we work to treat people with respect and dignity, no matter what program um, they're accessing. And um, because that's how I'd want to be treated. If if I had, if I accessed a program and needed help, we all need help sometime sure. in our lives. So um, probably varying degrees, but you'd want to be treated with respect and dignity and, um, and helped to find uh, where you can find support. Well, everybody has a story, and uh, you listen to those stories, and uh, you, you you befriend these people. You give them a safe place and uh, a foundation to which to, to start to move back up, and it's wonderful. And you're not going away. That's that's the takeaway from all we this. We are not going away. It is sad news, but we're really working on the next steps um, for Wesley, and all of our other programs will be continuing. So I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and, and speak with you today. Well, stay in touch as this unfolds over the next little while. Great that, to see you again, Andrea. That sounds great. We'll see you at Christmas time. For our Christmas and <laughs> oh, holiday store. Before that. Okay, before that sounds that. great. Andrea Butters, of course, uh, from Wesley Urban Ministries. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What the impact of uh, the Ford budget cuts on education are going to have here in this community. We're starting to get a, a more clear picture of that right now. Hamilton's uh, public school board says that will no longer offer about 173 courses that were planned for next year due to those changes. Joining us to talk about this is Alex Johnstone, who is the uh, trustee and the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Alex, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us again today. Oh, oh. Well, I guess we don't have her with us. We'll uh, rejig with Alex in just a couple of seconds here uh, and try to get her read on what's going on. This, of course, is is all a part of the uh, the cuts that were announced uh, by the education ministry some time ago, and uh, which seems to, uh, well, to most of us that have done any analysis on this, fly in the face of the promise that uh, the premier made that, uh, that you know, with all these budget cuts and the $6 million he's trying to find in efficiencies, that nobody was going to lose their job. Uh, tell that to the number of teachers that uh, have been given notices right now that they're probably not going to be coming back. That's somewhat problematic. But the other element to it, of course, is uh, is the impact it's going to have on students and the education itself. So uh, let me, uh, I think we've got Alex back with us. Alex, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Thank you, Bill. We, uh, when you and I talked a few weeks ago, you you'd said, look, this is obviously some work that you as a board had to do to come across 
uh, just how this is going to happen uh, and how you're going to try to fashion this. What what kind of a process do you go through, Alex, to decide, okay, that course can stay, this one's going to have to go? So a number of weeks ago, um, back in April, when trustees became aware that there was going to be changes made to education, and particularly around class sizes, our local trustees became very concerned around what the local impact would be. So at that point, we passed several motions, uh, including um, taking a half a million dollars out of our reserve funds in order to protect our priority courses and ensure that all four pathways um, within education could be met. So that means that kids would continue to have opportunities to pursue university track courses, college track courses, Um, apprenticeships and going into the workplace and community. We wanted to make sure that those opportunities remained at all of our high schools and we wanted to ensure that our our students continued to have robust experience. Uh, When we look at our courses, um, there's some programs that traditionally have lower programs or lower uh, class sizes. So our programs within the trades uh, and technology and special education courses are traditionally lower. And um, so we wanted to ensure that all of those opportunities continue to be provided. And uh, so trustees uh, redirected funds in order to try and curb the, the impact that was going to be felt locally. And that, that's an interesting uh, conundrum that you're facing here, too, because, uh, you know, you may have low enrollment in a particular class, like you say, maybe a trades class or something like that, but you've heard time and time again uh, from industry that, look, we need people with skilled trades. So you uh, to simply shut the door and say, well, we, you know, we don't we want to do this is, is closing opportunity for students, and, and you've made it a priority now not to do that. And I think it's important to note, so of the 173 courses that were withdrawn, and and we are wanting to be completely transparent in the process uh, in terms of uh, what these numbers mean, 115 courses did have fewer than 10 students. Um, But again, some of those courses uh, were, um, were extremely important in terms of meeting local student needs. And that's where we looked. Uh, we sought to ensure that all pathways were met. Uh, we sought to ensure that um, all of our specialized high school majors would continue and the unique courses that are attached to those programs, as well as French immersion. Um, so all, all of that we took into consideration, and each individual school went through all of our courses line by line and made a very thoughtful and detailed uh, I guess, choice and discussion around which courses uh, we would uh, work to retain. One of the questions, uh, and I got this from a listener after you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, uh, when talked about potential uh, dropping of courses, uh, is the International Baccalaureate Program. Her daughter was involved in the program. It's been very successful, the collaboration that the Hamilton Board has run with that uh, for a number of Hamilton students. It, it, what's the status for that program, Alex? So um, all of our IB programs are continuing. All of our specialized high school uh, major programs are continuing. However, the result is is that we would be offering less course options. Um, So whereas previously students may have um, uh, greater selection, um, now they would not or they would need to travel to another uh, campus site in order to access that programming. Um, is we cover a very large geographical area uh, from Waterdown to Winona. Um, as you can imagine, that's not always possible for uh, students to travel. 
Um, we are also looking to offer courses online, but that also has a, a huge impact as well, uh, especially when you're looking at our grade nines and tens. Uh, these are students who already spend enormous amounts of time alone online, and it's important that they continue to have adult mentors that they're connecting with and uh, in their day-to-day lives. Um, and then finally, the um, the, I guess the third outcome is that they would not have access to the course at all. Talk to us about the online courses, because the minister, when she was on our program, Alex, uh, talked about that at great length, that they wanted to do that. I, I, I have a problem with it, because I, I think, you know, it's it's not the same as, as one-on-one learning, as classroom learning, and like you say, that mentorship uh, is, is not as strong as it probably should be. And as you in the junior grades, in grade nine and ten especially, uh, I've talked to some parents that have some questions whether or not students at that age actually have the discipline to be able to go online and do the course properly because they're not used to doing it that way. Uh, have you decided? Have you developed a policy for this? Because inevitably, I guess you're going to have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. I think um, when we look at um, HWDSB, there is a huge popularity and growing popularity with online courses, and we're, we're excited about that. We're excited to support it, but we are also recognizing that online learning is not for everyone, and we've heard this very loud and clearly from our own students, our student senate, um, and our school councils who have communicated that they themselves have concerns about moving to an increased mandatory online learning model. Um, Again, when you're looking at 14-year-olds having to self-regulate and ensuring that the proper supports are there, at this point, we want to invite the ministry to work with us um, to ensure that as as this new model is rolled out, that there's proper supports in place, um, that uh, there is contact with uh, teachers locally in Hamilton um, that our students can connect with, and um, so that ultimately we can ensure that our students are successful. What about some of the core services, uh, the maths, uh, the languages, things of that nature? Are they impacted by this? Absolutely, and um, we have published um, the the courses that have been impacted. We have 29 um, uh, courses in the arts, as well as we have business, Canada and world studies, English, French, guidance studies, humanities. Uh, We do have uh, grade 10 languages, math, native studies, um, physical education. So really, um, we tried to preserve as many courses as possible and um, to ensure a robust Um, and diverse course selection. So that meant when we were reducing um, course selection, it was done across the board. So everybody is impacted, not equally, but just about every element of this is going to be impacted to some degree anyway. Correct. Uh, yeah, I was looking at some of the list here, too, and uh, that's that's one of the concerns. Because I know that one of the, the things the board has taken a lot of pride in over the last number of years is that diversity of, of curricula for different people, different needs, and, and maybe different interests, obviously. You know, that may be a different career path for somebody, and whether it's going to be the arts, drama courses, things of that nature, other people, it may be the maths and the sciences, et cetera. Uh, you've been able to offer that, uh, and uh, you, it seems from the list I'm looking at here, Alex, that you've been able to maintain that. I mean, you may not exactly have the same class sizes or the, the diversity within those programs, but you want to maintain those programs. 
I think this, um, our board of trustees worked hard this year to reallocate funds to protect um, diversity of course selection. That said, we're very concerned about how this moves forward into the future. So this year, um, going into the 2019-2020 school year, our class size averages will increase from 21.4 to 22.4. So that's one point difference. We, under the new government mandate, need to get to a 28 um, class size average. That's a huge difference. And we're very concerned about what the local impact will be moving forward. So the reduction of 173 courses this year is uh, the first step, um, but we're concerned about what that will look like in the coming years as we continue to move towards um, the mandated goal of a 28% or sorry, 28 student uh, class size average. I, I've been writing stuff down here as you've been talking and, and, and some of my notes from our previous conversations uh, because this is, as we mentioned, is going to have an impact on just about every aspect of, of the board's uh, programs going forward. And and one of the other areas, of course, of great concern, and I know it's something that you've worked on as long as you've been on the board, are the special programs uh, for those that need extra help, special education programs, uh, one-on-one teaching, etc. for some cases. Uh, there's There's been a great deal of work done by the Hamilton board on that too. Uh, is that in peril? Are you able to maintain that level? of excellence that you've been able to offer over the last number of years? And that's why we are trying to be uh, transparent and have full communication at this point is that we do have concerns. Um, We do have concerns about the local impact, especially as we move forward. Uh, Here in Hamilton, we have a very vulnerable population. We have one of the highest uh, rates of students who access special needs uh, services at um, 26%. We also have one in five students who come from impoverished households. So we have these unique challenges here in Hamilton. And we're very concerned that as we begin to uh, reduce classes, uh, class options, and those are the courses that get kids excited about attending school. When you find something that you're passionate about, you're more likely to attend. When you have a mentor or an adult, a teacher who you particularly get along with and you want to, um, that you want to do your best for, you have a better, um, a better rate of graduating. So we want to ensure that um, those supports and those um, uh, are in place so that we, we continue to have success, um, but we are very nervous moving forward that increased class sizes, reduced course options will have a negative impact. What about staffing levels? Uh, how do these numbers and, and what you've had to do here, Alex, impact uh, the staffing levels and, and, and obviously the concern about number of teachers that may not be asked back for next year? So by dipping into our reserve funds, we were able to bring back, it uh, equates to six um, actual people, so six teachers who will be coming back into our classrooms um, that, and for um, uh, to bring back a total of 34 classes. And um, again, those the, the reserve funds are not always there and they're meant to be there for in case of emergencies. We at this time do consider it to be an emergency. Uh, we do consider that um, uh, we need to ensure that um, diverse course options are available for our students, and in particular that our students have access to all four pathways at each of our high schools. So it is, uh, we're very nervous about moving forward. 
I, one of the big takeaways from this, too, that uh, I, I think our listeners uh, are going to have to understand about this as, uh, as you continue to do with these challenges, uh, what you've done here is, is, is great because you've been able to do as best you can to try to offer the best uh, diversity uh, to the most number of students. But this is not sustainable. I mean, you can't dip into reserves every year, can you? That's correct. It's, it, it puts tremendous pressure on local boards, and that's why we, at this time, we're, we're tracking the changes so we can communicate that to the ministry and invite them to have um, a very you know, um, collaborative conversation with us about how we can best serve students together. We have a shared interest in ensuring that our students continue to have um, successful graduation rates, that they continue to have success in school, um, and with that, uh, we want to be able to have very clear conversations around what the local impact has been. Are you able to offer those guarantees now to teachers that, uh, yes, you are coming back? And for that matter, I, I, maybe I should expand that question, Alex, uh, to teaching assistants, because I, I've, I've had contact with a number of them over the last couple of weeks that said, we don't know. I guess technically they don't find out until the end of the month, but uh, they don't know whether or not they're going to have a job in September right now. Has, have you addressed those concerns? So with that, we're continuing to work through the budget process. Um, so our redundancies has reduced from the original 99. We're down into um, the 70s. I believe it's 74 um, in terms of our redundancies to date. Um, and with that, it is dependent on retirement um, as well as uh, if we pass our final budget uh uh, this Monday coming up, actually. Well, uh, we'll certainly be talking then because, uh, as I say, your work here is clearly not done, but uh, so far so good anyway. And uh, uh, I, I guess the final question, uh, students are going to be impacted by this because some have already made course selections. Uh, do you contact them and say you're going to have to go to a plan B here? So the, part of the normal process, courses uh, do get canceled every single year. And um, so we would continue to work through our normal process of letting students know um, what, uh, what their options are. And uh, so they would be working through their local guidance office on that. Alex Johnson, uh, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. As always, Alex, thanks so much for this. And I know we'll be talking more about this in the uh, days and weeks ahead. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.